0: Hello, everyone. This is uh, episode two of um, a two-part series on the new patient-driven payment model uh, that's going to determine reimbursements for uh, Medicare SNF patients starting October 1st, uh, 2019. Uh, in the prior episodes, we focused on uh, the nuts and bolts of the new payment system. Um, this episode, we're going to focus on uh, the day to day operational issues associated with implementing the system. Uh, but I want to start by thanking our sponsor. Uh, this AHLA podcast is sponsored by Polaris Group, uh, a national long term care consulting firm specializing in Medicare compliance, clinical, operational, and financial consulting. The group performs mock surveys, MDS accuracy audits, PDPM training independent review organization, and more. My name is Dan Heddick. I'm a partner in King & Spaulding's uh, Healthcare Practice Group, resident in in, the, in Washington, D.C. I uh, just completed my six-year term as a vice chair of AHLA's uh, Regulation, Accreditation, and Payment Practice Group, better known as, as the RAP Group. Uh, I focus my career on uh, Medicare reimbursement issues of all types, both advising on them and, and litigating some of those same issues. I'm very happy to be joined uh, today um, by um, Judy Coolis and Mike Cheek. Um, Mike, will you introduce yourself uh, to the group?
1: Sure. Uh, I'm the Senior Vice President for Reimbursement Policy and Business Strategy with the American Healthcare Association. Uh, We represent about 13,000 of roughly the 15,000 skilled nursing facility buildings in the country, Um, and I've spent about the past five years uh, working with Judy and others um, uh, and with CMS on the development of the payment system we now know as the patient-driven payment model, and then the majority of this past year traveling from state to state delivering trainings to our state affiliates and their members on how to operationalize uh, the patient-driven payment model.
2: Judy. And I'm Judy Coolis, I'm the, yeah, I'm the, uh, Judy Coolis, the Chief Nursing Executive for Lantis Enterprises. We have um, nursing homes, SNFs, assisted living, home health, and a staffing agency. And my role is to um, help the facilities with their nursing systems, as well as um, implement the PDPM system in the facility. I also, as Mike said, uh, worked with him and other organizations, uh, as a, and I was privileged to serve on the technical expert panel um, for the uh, planning for the precursor to the PDPM system. So it's, uh, it's been great to, to work with the nursing teams and the therapy teams and facilities as we get ready for implementation on 10-1.
0: Great. Uh, again, thank you to you both for, for joining us. I'll be serving primarily as a moderator for this uh, episode. And, Mike, I want to kick it off with you. Um, I mentioned the last episode was dedicated to kind of um, the nuts and bolts of the new payment system. But I was hoping you could give us kind of a, a quick overview of what some of the key changes uh, are between RUG4, the prior system, and and the new PDPM payment model.
1: Sure. So, from an operational perspective, I'm just—I'll—I'm I'll, going to walk us through um, a, a sort of a, a SNF stay experience from the from the patient experience perspective and how SNF staff work with them. So, under RUGs, um, of course, the primary uh, primary vehicle for payment were therapy minutes, and that is what the SNF staff were were focused on, and as they Uh, assess the patient, speak with the patient, and if needed, interacted with the hospital to arrive at some estimate of the number of therapy minutes that a patient might need and from subsequently be uh, classified into a resource utilization group um, component based on those number of therapy minutes. PDPM is a complete departure from that. Um, uh, Skilled nursing facility staff will need to look at a patient in a very different way. CMS's terminology for this is holistic patient care planning. Um, And by that, they mean interacting with the patient, assessing a broad array of clinical information that's used for all of the case mix group, case mix groups, uh, service-related items to arrive at the most appropriate for each of the components. Um, that information, in some instances, will require um, in su- a potentially notable new in-reach and dialogue with hospital discharge planners to collect the information that may be needed. Some students may already have um, relationships with hospitals where the hospitals share um, large amounts of clinical information um, with skilled nursing facilities, and other in other instances, hospitals do not. Um, so, uh, looking at how uh, members, how skilled nursing facilities will collect information to complete um, the new MDS with um, uh, roughly 188 MDS items that affect payment, um, will be particularly important. Um, reorganizing your admissions team um, to be able to collect that information um, for the initial Medicare assessment, that's what CMS is calling um, the formally call, referred to five-day assessment, um, is, will be challenging to collect all of that information and hit that eight-day window. Um, if you go beyond eight days to nine, um, it, the, uh, the case mix, group assignments uh, default to the lowest-paying case mix group. Those can be adjusted, um, but when that occurs, for the variable per diem components, um, non-therapy, ancillary, OT, and PT, they do not restart at day one. So being able to be efficient and um, organized with your admissions team, in particular, dialogue between therapists um, and nursing staff to ensure that the section GG items are score uh, functional items are scored in a collaborative fashion since they do overlap in terms of component casements group assignment for PTOT and nursing is, is important. And then also um, thinking through a holistic care plan for a patient, and CMS emphasizes this term as well. In their um, in their presentations, individualized care um, and maintaining that individualized care plan across uh, across the stay or during the stay, the role of the MDS coordinator is really going to have to change as well. So the traditional role in some SNFs, for, um, not all, um, of the MDS coordinator simply completing the MDS for purposes of maintaining the care plan is going to change pretty dramatically um, an mds coordinator under pdpm will begin to look a lot like a care coordinator in order to make sure that the plan is truly individualized truly holistic um, and maintained in that fashion both for the patient as well as for the skilled nursing facility because mds now drives payment in a way that it did it, to the scale at which it formally did not um, also, having um, a policy and related protocol um, for no, for what the triggering event is for an interim payment assessment, when this, when what CMS refers to as stable characteristics um, don't trend as projected, and a change may be needed, and understanding what that again holistic picture looks like. Um, on the previous segment, we discussed that. One component payment may need to go up while uh, while another may be able may need to go down. So being able to work with the interdisciplinary team and ensuring that they have a way of assessing in a comprehensive manner to ensure that that plan is consistent is important. And then finally, in terms of discharge, making sure that the discharge assessment accurately captures um, the therapy discipline modalities is important making sure that the MDS coordinator um, is uh, communicating effectively with the billing staff to make sure that the admission diagnosis and the discharge diagnosis um, are as not— CMS is not requiring that they match, but they are encouraging or expecting those two diagnoses to match. So making sure that a dialogue occurs, particularly around therapy um, assessment or or number of minutes and the admission and discharge diagnosis um, is important to make sure that that medical documentation is there to support any differences. There will be no hard edit um, around admission and discharge diagnosis for FY20, but I think a best practice going into the new system Um, is having a good solid medical documentation or record to show why they change over the course of the stay. So, Judy, anything you'd want to add to that?
2: You know, you were speaking of the challenges of the admission process and gathering information from the hospital, and and it is really nice when the physician can log into the hospital, uh, if it's an epic chart or whatever the system is, and look at the information on that patient to gather the appropriate information to make the determination of one, to accept that patient uh, into your facility as well as to gather the important information. And if they don't have that access, the information can be kind of uh, limited on occasion, unless you do build that good relationship with your hospital discharge planners so that you get the information that you need. And I think one, one important aspect, I think that the, admission coordinators are going to have is to be familiar with what it is that they need to gather information about. Um, You know, we've we've been struggling with this as we have been implementing an, an admission process in our organization and trying to get the information from the hospital. And I think with the challenge of census that's happening across the country and the speed to which we need to make admission decisions, this process that we're advocating of being thorough to determine, uh, one, can we meet the needs of the patient, what will their needs be, and gathering all the information so that we can um, accept them, we are being pushed to make decisions quickly, and so we'll have to become efficient at this process to gather the information quickly, make determination about whether they're appropriate for our facility, and then to smooth that transition, and, and, I, and I really am committed to encourage uh, clinical teams to use this admission process to smooth that transition into the facility so that, uh, I call it hit the ground running, is that the care management organization, the setting up for the patient's needs before they even arrive in your building, This the robust information that we need to manage the PDPM is also the information we need to set up good care management. Um, right immediately as they come in, that we know as much about that patient as possible so that we can set up that uh, baseline care plan and get, get our protocols in place and so that we, we start, start well, start that patient well in our building. Um, the other thing about the importance of this robust, um, the granularity of the information that we're gathering, is, is that the more complex a patient is, uh, the more, of course, there is to manage and the care management, but also it it really does inform the length of stay. And so as we meet as inter- IDT teams with therapy and all of that, as we look at the protocol, uh, the regimen that we're going to set up for a particular patient that's individual for them, um, we will be able to uh, better uh, better determine the length of stay and, and the expectation for progress a- along that care continuum to be sure that the length of stay is justified as well as uh, we are making progress and tracking that part progress and the more complex in many cases, the, the longer uh, the Medicare A stay could be. Um, and, and so it also, sh- the, the inverse is true is if they're not complex, um, then, then justifying longer stays would be inappropriate. And, and of course, uh, we need to be managing that tightly to, to have the appropriate length of stay. So, again, as Mike said, reiterating the importance of gathering information, collaboration with the hospital, and and the care management is going to be uh, paramount for success in this system.
0: Great. Thank you, Judy. So, Mike, what are CMS's uh, PDPM provider performance priorities that compliance officers and and attorneys should be aware of? Uh, Maybe more specifically, what do you expect uh, new audit target areas to be?
1: CMS, um, and it, CMS is real, has re- reinforced over and over again um, its intent to use uh, the Impact Act Quality Reporting Program measures um, for assessing performance um, of, of providers under PDPM. They have a very specific list that they've verbally articulated um, and have indicated to us that they've set benchmarks for performance. Um, under uh, the quality reporting qrps that they'll be using at, for assessing pdpm performance so i think that that's a, a, an important area to consider in terms of how they view the quality of care um, under pdpm of course it'll be well into the spring before they have data to make assessments uh, along those regard in that regard in the final um, FY19 rule, um, they call out some very specific items um, that they will be monitoring um, that are important um, for folks to pay attention to. Um, so they discuss at some length um, appropriate ICD-10 coding um, for purposes of case mix group assignment for the uh, for the uh, for the. For the components, um, they specifically reference um, the potential for upcoding. Um, in some of their spoken comments, um, they also discuss resident interviews, um, making sure that patient voice is is included um, as part of the initial um, the initial Medicare assessment. Um, a good example of that is BIMS um, and mood assessment, and making sure that that's well documented. Um, as part of case mix group assignment. They'll be looking for that. Um, Diagnosis changes um, at admission and subsequent subsequent changes. Um, Again, there will be no hard edit for admission and discharge, but they will be looking for medical documentation to support that. Um, We talked about the definition of skilled care. CMS will be monitoring to ensure that the definition of skilled care is being used as the framework for how services are delivered. Um, I think that under the resource utilization group, we've wandered a bit from that by focusing on therapy so heavily. So they'll be looking for what the primary diagnosis is for admission to a SNF um, why are they there? Because there's some specific regulatory language around that. And then from there, how that's um, leveraged in terms of the, the, the a holistic care plan as it relates to skilled nursing, uh, skilled nursing coverage. Um, resource, uh, resource underutilization, in particular, therapy access. Um, so they'll be watching very carefully for, um, and they've they've spoken about this publicly, um, stinting on therapy, um, attempts to reduce overhead costs um, by reducing therapy in some fashion or another. Another important area um, is the interrupted stay policy. Um, the interrupted stay policy is a payment policy. It's in it, it's there to ensure that patients are not being discharged for the purpose of restarting the variable per diems. CMS will be watching for use of the interrupted stay policy in scenarios where it could be gamed in some fashion or another um, and placing facilities that are doing that on what they refer to as heightened scrutiny. Um, of course, if you use the, uh, the, inter- the interrupted state policy to discharge to a hospital, you're potentially impacting your value based purchasing potential bonus payment under the rehospitalization VBP program. But that 2% may, uh, or whatever your potential bonus payment may be, may be worth the risk financially um, in order to restart, in particular, the non therapy ancillary variable per diem. Um, so, but it, but it's I don't but it's certainly something that's not worth the risk of coming under heightened scrutiny and whatever that means. CMS hasn't defined that yet. Um, and then lastly, um, they've been pretty clear around what their expectations are around lengths of stay. Um, Judy mentioned that earlier. Um, they'll be looking for what they believe are inappropriately short lengths of stay um, for what a patient may need. Their measures uh, for that, again, take us back to outcomes um, for patients, which takes us a little ways out in ter- terms of them having a quarter or two of uh, QRP data to start to understand whether those lengths of stay are too short. Um, and the, the reason they're watching for that is primarily because of the variable per DM associated with physical therapy and occupational therapy. We've emphasized with our members that those decreases are spread out. So um, at at, at such lengthy time intervals, um, they don't start until day 21, and it decreases 2% every seven days subsequently across the 100-day stay. Um, That that's not a huge amount of money, and it's certainly not a reason to discharge someone Um, early, but it's something that they've indicated they'll be watching for. So that's a short overview of some of the compliance items um, that folks should be aware of.
0: Thanks, Mike. I mean, this is an important topic. Jude, do you have any thoughts about um, Therapy Minutes in particular or or any of the other um, items that you think are going to be a specific focus for compliance?
2: Absolutely. As, as Mike mentioned, I think there is a worry and CMS has indicated they don't want to see, um, you know, the cliff where we have high levels of therapy on 930 and then a, a huge drop on 10 for those that are in a Medicare state during the transition. And, and that ongoing monitoring of, of potential stinting is going to be something that CMS will be watching very carefully. And so when it gets right down to it, it's what, what is appropriate then? And as we um, no longer will uh, be so focused on high levels of therapy that potentially might may have been inappropriate in some cases. Um, what we really do need to focus on is appropriate use of therapy. So uh, what are some of the red flags that CMS might be looking for is, uh, again, a, a huge change in your therapy regimens uh, that, that is uh, different than what we have been doing, um, that is Seemingly not appropriate for the comorbidities and the needs of that patient. And so I think what I'm encouraged by, at least with our therapy uh, company that we've been collaborating with, is they are working carefully to set up some, um, some skilled uh, therapy protocols and some evidence based um, mapping of what type of therapy would be appropriate for different types of diagnoses and patients that, that we'll be treating. Uh, moving into the new system so that we can create that individualized model, um, but meeting the needs of specific protocols and targets and goals for particular types of diagnosis, which I think is going to take some time to learn and grow. And uh, the nurses are going to have a huge opportunity to participate in uh, setting up those protocols. And I I look forward to to doing that um, with our therapy provider some, some red flags uh, might be inappropriate use of group minutes. Now, the current definition for group minutes is four patients with one therapist. And in the proposed rule, uh, they're proposing that group be two to six patients. Um, and this would be patients doing, uh, with similar goals doing, doing the same activities in a group. And, and I'm, personally, I, I know that group therapy can be very therapeutic, And it can be a a wonderful way to be holistic and socializing uh, patients during their treatment protocol and and has an appropriate place in in treatment regimen, but it should not be used simply for for payment uh, benefit. It has to really be focused on the the particular patient uh, and why the group therapy is appropriate for them. The other modality that we're probably going to see more of uh, that that meets within that 25% limit for PT and then another 25% limit for OT is that concurrent um, treatment where the therapist would be treating two patients doing uh, different activities on different apparatus or different goals. Um, and we'll see more of that. And so uh, we, we want to consider red flags for, um, for inappropriate use of concurrent, inappropriate use of uh, group therapy, but recognizing that they have their place as appropriate uh, protocols and treatment um, modalities for the patient that will help them to excel um, effectively towards the goal of discharge. And and again, I think the amount of therapy and the modality that we pick is going to help is going to really impact the length of stay. And I, and I think as a, as a professional, we need to, to look at the philosophy around Uh, high-intensity therapy uh, towards the end versus a tapering therapy, and and there's some evidence-based research that we need to consider to look at the types of modalities and the treatment philosophies that we're going to be using to meet the needs of the patient, knowing that, um, again, being being careful to justify our our regimens um, because CMS, as they've indicated, are going to be watching carefully that that whatever we do is patient-centered and appropriate.
0: Mike, in, in the last episode, we went through um, in detail the many changes to um, to the payment drivers. You know, previously there was three components that made up uh, total payments. CMS made it six, including a separate component for non-therapy ancillaries like drugs, the variable per diem rate uh, that you alluded to, a change in the way HIV-AIDS patients were going to be uh, paid. Um, how do you expect all of these uh, significant changes to to affect uh, Care delivery design, um, and you know, um, provision.
1: So, I, 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 with with CMS's new uh, new approach to to its payment system by by breaking out nursing and non-therapy ancillaries um, into uh, distinct components, um, and their emphasis on individualized holistic care. Um, They also go a step further by talking about PDPM as uh, focusing on delivery of of more of care to more medically complex patients um, by breaking out nursing and non-therapy ancillaries and and placing more emphasis um, on those two particular elements. So I think that in terms of service delivery, um, many skilled nursing providers are looking at developing clinical care pathways that focus on patients with more clinically, more clinically intense care needs. Um, that's not to say that they are dropping the, um, their lines of rehabilitation therapy, um, but there are an, uh, an array of our members um, that, are in, that are in dialogues with hospital systems, hospitals, um, Manage care plans to discuss what the prevalence of particular conditions um, or patients with specific types of, of comorbidities around which they could develop clinical care pathways um, that would meet a need within a given market, um, support um, skilled nursing facility partners, as well as serve as a new opportunity for the skilled, for the skilled nursing facility. Um, Nursing in particular um, is a big focus here. Uh, CMS has gone to a good deal of length uh, in both in the FY19 rule to discuss classification and why nursing is the linchpin in PDPM um, and placing a great deal of attention on that. So I think that this where, where it's leading us is a focus, uh, again, a focus on clinic, cl- clinical care for patients with multiple comorbidities um, that, uh, that historically have not been the primary focus in mostness um, where his, where historically under rugs, we focused more on therapy.
0: Thanks, Mike. Judy, we've alluded to this uh, already, so I don't know if you have anything to add about um, how CMS, is going to monitor uh, provider performance uh, under the PDPM?
2: Well, there's an array of contractors that CMS have in, has in place already that uh, will likely be uh, deployed to return their, their focus on uh, Medicare payments in the PDPM system. Those uh, organizations now, of course, the, one of the main audit entities that is looking at uh, the current Medicare A system is the Medicare administrative contractors, those that are billed for the, for the care that, we're, that are being provided. And the max, I'm, I'm assuming, will continue to uh, monitor on a prepayment as well as a postpayment basis. And Mike, Mike referred to the fact that he doesn't see some hard edits being put in place initially, but as the system is implemented and we look for uh, incongruency incongruency in the system in terms of the claims and how they're paid, we are going to probably see some edits put in place when we send the claim in that may stop that claim for a prepayment audit. And then, of course, they always uh, are engaged in uh, random postpayment audits. There's other uh, organizations that are contracted that likely will focus their attention, the recovery auditors. Um, There's the CERT auditors, the comprehensive error testing, which uh, review the claims that the MAC pays. Um, and they have other more punitive audit entities like the HEAT auditors, the healthcare fraud prevention that's really looking for, uh, for clear fraud, um, and then the, the United uh, Program Integrity Contractors is another entity. So all of these, I think, will be deployed. They're focusing now on inappropriately paid Medicare um, payments, and um, as we move into the new system, their focus will be turned as well. And, and again, I think we've emphasized during this podcast the importance of uh, making sure that we are covering patients appropriately under the skilled care guidelines and then supporting the care that we provide with the medical record uh, under audit. That's going to be important. And, um, and then as, as we move forward, I think we'll see some, uh, some hard, fast edits put in place that will Uh, the indications of charts that need to be reviewed, and then we can always be prepared for random audits uh, that will occur based on uh, the entities. Um, The Office of Inspector General also focuses on some different areas, um, but um, again, we'll be seeing uh, some focus put in some specific areas uh, that CMS will indicate to their contractors of where to focus.
0: Thank you, Judy. Mike, we've um, been focusing, obviously, on Medicare Part A, which is what um, the PDPM specifically applies to, but what um, can we expect to see with regards to non-traditional fee-for-service such as managed care and ACOs and um, et cetera?
1: So uh, this is quite a moving target. Um, So as most of you likely know, uh, CMS is statutorily prohibited Um, from engaging in any dialogue uh, in regard to contract and payment between Medicare Advantage plans and contracted providers. Uh, So, all what CMS has done is essentially said that the plans can shift to PDPM if and when they see fit. Um, There's some questions around assessment information um, that the plans will need. Um, if they if they choose to remain under RUGS, uh, because the assessment schedule and assessment items and the MDS format itself, other than um, change under PDPM, o- the over assessments do not. It's possible that that information might be uh, might be used um, for plans that uh, that remain under RUGS and don't shift to PDPM. So there's there are a lot of moving parts to that. Uh, We're waiting for claims and billing guidance to, come, to be released from CMS to give us a little more guidance around how um, they view cl- um, claims and billing to work under Medicare Advantage um, based on the assessment information that plans may need that remain under RUGS. Um, for plans that are shifting to PDPM, there are two national carrier, uh, carriers under MA that, are, that will be transitioning to PDPM. Um, they've not articulated how or when they'll be doing that. Um, that this is all very much, as I said, fluid and and and, and, and an array of moving parts. Um, the other part I think that makes MA particularly challenging um, is that even with national carriers like um, you know, like an Etna um, or Humana, Humana, they're operated through regional offices. So. Corporate may make a decision to move to PDPM, but the regional offices will make the decisions about when and how that happens. Um, So for multi-state skilled nursing facility providers, um, they will have to track carefully and remain in close communication with their contract officers with managed care plans um, around how and when those sorts of transitions um, will happen. With accountable care organizations um, and uh, and BPCI sites, um, CMS has released very little information about how this will work. Um, with with, um, with uh, account, accountable care organizations, their benchmarks um, will have to be recalculated um, under PDPM. The Centers, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, Medicaid Innovation um, have discussed a methodology for crosswalking rugs um, into PDPM and from there calculating target prices. But I think one of the real challenges associated with, uh, with accountable care organizations is their efficiency imperative. Um, they've focused on lengths of stay that they view are, are as appropriate for certain types of rehabilitation patients, which takes us to somewhat of a cookie-cutter approach to care. Um, which is the exact opposite direction that PDPM is taking skilled nursing facility providers in with individualized holistic approaches to care with highly variable lengths of stay based on what their needs are. So a lot of education and reconciliation needs to happen there. Um, and again, the, the Center for Medicare and the Center for Medicare, Medicare and Medicaid Innovation are still in discussions about how they're going to message Um, to ACOs about that. Um, The same is largely true around BPCI demonstration sites. Um, The episodic length of stay um, under uh, BPCI episodes, again, those have lengths of stay that are targeted um, by conveners uh, for BPCI. Um, Those all will have to be revisited um, as well as as well as the target pricing for episode condition categories for um, for the BPCI demonstration sites. Um, so there's a lot of work there that hasn't, has yet to be clarified. Um, we're in discussions with CMS and CMMI about how that will be communicated um, to ACOs and BPCI demo sites and conveners with BPCI. Um, to try to make sure that this is uh, as coherent and organized a transition process as possible. Um, but there's a great deal to be done in this area.
0: Thank you, Mike. Um, Judy, I know this is, this is near near and dear to your heart. Um, we alluded to the change in the number of resident assessments and in particular the, the simplification of those um, from periodic assessments, uh, mandatory assessments on the RUG-4 to, to just a single mandatory one upon admission. um, Does that mean that fewer nurses uh, will be needed to to conduct those assessments?
2: Uh, You know, that is a topic of discussion that is frequently brought up uh, in our organization and even across the country as we look at um, the MDS nurse, the role of the MDS nurse, the role of uh, clinical nurses with the the complexity of care that we're going to see, and and Mike talked about the the need for care pathways to deal with the comorbidities and the complex care that's coming um, and and we're seeing that as well that as the reduction of the number of payment assess- assessments occurred, um, there's going to be importance put on that that one very much longer initial assessment, uh, and so doing that well. And, and then using that assessment to really drive the care plan, the nursing the nurse will have a role in that uh, very, very importantly. Uh, one of the things that I, that I am uh, hearing that we're going to be seeing more and more is not only the care pathways, but also clinical decision support tools. Uh, and it's the idea of when uh, certain conditions are in place for a complex patient that we have a... Methodical pathway, so that care pathway, to assess that patient, but then also to provide, based on the answers, to provide that clinical decision support of what to look for next or what to consider in terms of care planning. And and as I have had the opportunity as a nursing informaticist in our organization to uh, set up some user-defined assessments, it's been it's been great to put some protocols in place that guide the nurse to care planning items that are specific for that patient. And I think we're going to see a lot more um, need for the MDS nurse to be be that care management and to support the care pathways that are put in place for a particular patient based on their diagnosis and to help look at uh, are the clinical decision support tools uh, working effectively? Uh, Is it helping the nurses that care for the patient on each shift? Uh, provide good quality of care, and the MDS nurse, I think has the opportunity to become um, more of an analytic nurse that they will be looked at uh, are analyzing each day the charting, analyzing the care that 's being delivered, the progress towards the goal for each patient on an individual case management level, but then also looking at the overall analytics of the care model and as as we've talked about the The MDSs will also drive our quality reporting programming, Uh, the value-based purchasing with the rehospitalization measures, and other things are so important. And I think the nurses can, in many ways, be retooled uh, from uh, spending so much time completing assessments to to being more of a clinical nurse. Uh, Another role that that MDS nurse, uh, we might see them having is that ICD-10 specialist. It's, it's a complex coding system to, to accurately code the diagnosis, and we need trained, skilled nurses in the building to do that, and that MDS uh, assessment nurse can be the leader in that area, and, um, and I, I see them stepping up and doing that and, and getting trained, um, and that, that's a good thing. We did a work study. We analyzed the workload of the nurse under the RUGS4 system, and so it was, a, it was a clear time study. And then uh, we ran it again with, uh, with a potential anticipated number of PDPM assessments that would be needed. And the results were that the, the full-time equivalent for the number of nurses required was the same. Uh, as we looked at uh, the, the, the slightly changing role of perhaps a little bit fewer time in uh, the number of assessments completed uh, to the increased time needed for the icd 10 coding, uh, reviewing the charting and doing the case management, and it really is a wash. And I would, I would be careful uh, for all any facilities to to think that you know starting October one they can cut their uh, MDS department in half. Uh, but to really look at the job descriptions, look at the role, and look at the training of those nurses, and equip them to be uh, case management um, and care management of the the particular uh, residents' need and. As Mike mentioned, the, the complexity of dealing with the managed Medicare Advantage program, we're seeing a rise in the number of patients that are um, Medicare Advantage, and managing those um, alongside your traditional Medicare A uh, is also a, a, an important task that these nurses can have to be sure that uh, they're doing case management for all of those um, types of Medicare patients, whether traditional or part of a managed care entity. And, and as as he noted. There's there's a lot of variety in the requirements, length of stay, uh, the authorizations and all that for those Medicare Advantage, and I think nurses uh, will be tapped uh, even more and more to manage that effectively for the patients that they receive.
0: Great. Thank you, Judy. So, Mike, given all these uh, pretty significant changes in, in the payment model, um I imagine the relationships and potentially even you know, the contracts that existed between SNFs and outside providers, like outside therapists or um, long-term care pharmacists are probably going to change as well. Can you give us your, uh, your thoughts on that?
1: Um, so I think that you know, in particular, the relationship between skilled nursing facilities and um, those that contract um, for therapy delivery is front and center. Um, so I think that you know uh, there's a great deal of discussion that has been underway um, around revisiting those relationships. And for the most part, what we've been what we have heard from our members and what we've been talking to our members about are revisiting those relationships um, such that they are value based in nature. Um, so that they link out to out the outcome measurement approach that CMS has laid out for the patient-driven payment model, and looking at what the uh, Impact Act QRP measures um, that, are set, uh, that are most appropriate um, for potentially serving as, a va- as, a va- as value-based relationships with therapy contracting companies. Um, so, for example, for therapy, CMS has discussed um, change, uh, change in self-care and mobility, discharge self-care and mobility, um, functional items such as that under QRP as measures for SNF performance um, under PDPM. So, looking at some of those some of those items as potential value-based purchasing um, arrangements between skilled nursing facilities and therapy contractors um, is important Um, as far as uh, long-term care pharmacies uh, relationships with with skilled nursing facilities when again that those are contractual relationships or when they're in-house i think that there's there's the opportunity to really revisit the, the relationships in terms of how Communication happens, in particular, gathering as much clinical information as possible um, to make sure that the, an, the appropriate uh, number of points for non for the non-therapy ancillary component are identified, so that a patient is categorized into the, into the appropriate case mix group. And again, that's critical because the starting point. Um, The starting point relative to where you drop on day four um, is a considerable amount of money. Drop it drops by two thirds. So if your starting point is too low, then where you are for the remainder of the stay um, could be under cost. Um, So making sure that you have a strong partner if you're using a contracted long-term care pharmacy. And or making sure that your long term care pharmacy, if they're in house, um, are heavily engaged in the intake process using the initial Medicare assessment um, is important.
0: Thank you, Mike. So before we wrap up, uh, any closing thoughts, uh, Judy or Mike?
1: I, I think you know, for, from my, from our perspective with the American Healthcare Association. Um, PDPM is a welcome relief um, in terms of moving away from, um, from a minutes-based system that, interestingly, the evaluation reports on RUGS from 2000 and 2001 note that there would likely be problems with therapy minutes under the payment system. So, moving away from a system that appeared to have challenges in its fundamental design from its inception um, is a welcome one. Um, And then secondly, the opportunity to have a a payment system that focuses on an individual and that is more flexible um, and it emphasizes the full definition of skilled care, empowering nurses and other clinical professionals. Um, I think is something that the vast majority of our members are really excited about.
0: Great. On that note, we'll um, wrap up. Thank you again for everybody who who, uh, joined us. Um, Thank you again, especially to Mike and Judy for sharing their expertise with us and to our, our sponsor.